Well, good morning and welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and it is good to be with you this morning, uh, to worship with you through song and now to open up God's word with you. Uh, Kim is going to be reading our sermon text this morning, so listen to God's word read over you today. Good morning. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I sat there in more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his hand, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that my same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as also fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun has grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have told and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about the, and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has told with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toll for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he tolls beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than uh, he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is in vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, holy God, we are grateful for this opportunity to be together. We're grateful for the opportunity to be reminded once again of your power and your presence, your greatness and your grace. And God, we pray now by the work of the Holy Spirit that your living and active word would be at work in our hearts and our minds. And that through that, God, you would bring life in places of death and hope in places of despair and apathy. And God, that you would do that for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I grew up in Fairfax County. Uh, my family moved to the area when I was just about to turn four years old. And so I spent my years in school in Fairfax County Public Schools, K through 12. And now my family's here, obviously. And three of my four kids are in FCPS schools as well, a rising second grader to seventh grader. And they've had a great experience so far. And I generally enjoyed school as well. I had good teachers along the way, I made some good friends along the way, uh, and really had a good experience overall. But one thing I look back on that I realized and remember that I didn't enjoy was busy work. Things like worksheets or other seamless, pointless activities. I didn't enjoy them because in my mind they had no real point. They just seemed meaningless. 
I mean, can't we experience that sometimes in our own life? Maybe we aren't doing worksheets anymore, but sometimes our work or our vocation, at least parts of it, can leave us wondering, what's the point? What's the point of all this? Well, today we're continuing on in our sermon series called Under the Sun. It's a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this book of the Bible is pretty different from the rest of Scripture. It's what's called a part of being a part of wisdom literature. And as you heard, maybe Mark mentioned in the first sermon a few weeks ago, it's more of a travel log than it is a letter or a story. This author is seeking and looking for possible sources of satisfaction in this life, life that we live under the sun. And all along the way, he's deconstructing all of them. Last week, Vince showed us how satisfaction in this life can't ultimately be found in pursuing pleasure in this world. And today we're going to look at two other aspects of life, wisdom and work. But within this, the author introduces a new concept to this book, something he'll bring up throughout the rest of the time, and that is the reality of death and the temporal nature of this life. And we'll see that that leads him to essentially ask the question, what's the point? What's the point of wisdom? What's the point of work if we're all just going to die in the end? Super uplifting, right? I don't think this guy would have been great at writing Hallmark cards. But it isn't all melancholy in the text today. Within this text, we get our first encouraging word in the whole book, a word that helps us to frame everything in the right perspective, a a word that helps us give us a, a right focus, which is exactly what we need. Not only this original audience needed, this author needed, but we need in the midst of the world and the life that we find ourselves in, a word that put God, that puts God at the center. And I want us to see in this is that while death is at work in our lives and in our world, we serve a resurrecting God and a risen King who redeems all of life under the sun. And so my hope today that no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, no matter what you do for work, what your vocation is, is that God will help all of us to have a right view of what we spend many of our waking hours doing in a way that will bring joy to our own lives and glory to our God. So with that, let's jump into Ecclesiastes chapter two and may God bless the preaching of his word. We're going to be looking, like I said, at wisdom and work. But before we do that, I want to look at something that's in the middle of this text. And that's where the author brings up this idea of the temporal nature of life. The inevitability that we're all going to die. Verses 14 and 15. The end of verse 14 and 15. He says, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. He's talking about death. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very, so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. The theme of death is introduced here. Something that no one can avoid in our fallen and broken world. And what we'll see in a minute is that wisdom is indeed better than folly, better than foolishness, but it doesn't give you bonus points in life. It doesn't give you extended life, like you're playing a video game and you get a little extra life added to you because you're wise. No, there's no immortality attached to wisdom. The end is the same for all. The wise and the foolish will both die. So that leads the author to question, what's the point then? What's the point of wisdom? What's the point of work? If I live wisely or foolishly, if I'm successful in my work or not, if I'm 
productive or lazy, if we'll still all end up dead like everyone else, then why does it matter? This too seems like futility. Another example of the vapor that life is under the sun. And to maybe make matters worse, the author reflects on the fact that not only will he one day die, but most of all of us will ultimately be forgotten when we're gone. Look at verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Most of us will not have our names attached to a special day or be up on a building or on a book. Most of us will be remembered by a generation or maybe two, but not much beyond that. That can be hard to think about, to wrestle with. It kind of highlights the temporal nature of this life. It overshadows the wrestlings that this author is having in this section. If we're all going to die and be forgotten, no one's even going to remember anything that we said or did, then what's the point of wisdom? What's the point of work? Well, let's jump into that first question. What's the point of wisdom? We see this in verses 12 through 17. The author has sought out meaning. He sought out satisfaction in pursuing pleasure and has found that wanting. And now he says, verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He wants to see what, if anything, will bring satisfaction in this life. Maybe if I pursue a life of wisdom, I'll be satisfied. Or maybe if I pursue a life of madness and folly, I'll be satisfied. Well, what is wisdom? It isn't just having knowledge and information. Wisdom is about how to rightly apply the knowledge and information we have in a way that allows us to live in light of God and his ways. And what's folly? It's another word for foolishness. It's living a life in a self-guided echo chamber with no acknowledgement of God, no acknowledgement of his ways. So this isn't always a matter of clear rights and wrongs, but what is good and most glorifying to God. And what he realizes in his pursuit of satisfaction is still good truth, good insight for us in our own lives. Look at verses 13 and the beginning of verse 14. He says, then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He equates wisdom with light and foolishness with darkness, saying that it's like having eyes in my head. I can actually see when I'm walking in wisdom. The the room is lit up. The path is lit up. I know where I'm going. I can see what lies ahead and what I pursue. But foolishness is like walking around with no eyes and in darkness, unable to be able to see what's in front of me, bumping into things, not knowing what's coming, not knowing what dangers lie before me. And so it's obvious to him and hopefully to us that living a life of wisdom, walking in the light is always going to be better than folly. Always better than walking in darkness. Now, we may acknowledge that, say we believe it, and we don't always live that way, do we? Sometimes we choose the foolish path, and that can be for a variety of reasons. But I think one of the biggest, and something we're going to see throughout this book, is that when we pursue foolishness or folly, it's often because we've lost sight of God, and we aren't living a sober-minded kind of life. As we approach different circumstances and situations, we're not considering God. We're not considering how he would have us live. We're not considering what might be most honoring and glorifying to him. We're not thinking with the mind of Christ. 
So we start listening to and following the so-called wisdom of the world, which James in his book says is marked by jealousy and selfish ambition. Self is at the center when we walk in foolishness. James goes on to say it's unspiritual and demonic. So how can we live wisely? Well, we can do so by being guided and guarded by God's word and God's spirit that he's given to each of us if we are in Christ and by God's people. That we're surrounded by men and women. If you're a member of this church, we've committed to one another to help each other walk in wisdom and not foolishness. So this is a good principle for us to live by even now. But here again, it's where the reality of inevitability comes crashing down in verses 14 and 15, which I already read. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is better, the author says. But if the same things happen to the wise as to the fool, ultimately culminating in death and being forgotten, then what is the point? We might ask ourselves the same question. Why should I really try to pursue wisdom if it's all going to end in the same way? What we learn from this is that while wisdom is good, it isn't a savior. It's good, it honors God, but it doesn't give you immunity from the hardships and misfortunes and difficulties of this life. It doesn't allow you to escape the finiteness of life. And for now, this leads the author to use some pretty strong language as he thinks about this. Look at verse 17. So, in conclusion, what he says to this is, I hated life. I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I don't know about you, but this language might cause you to feel a bit uncomfortable. I know we talk to our kids at different points in time and say, hey, let's not use the word hate when we're talking about things that we don't like. It's such a strong word. But here the author says he hates life. Like, is that okay for him to say something like this in the Bible? But I'm thankful for it because it gives us an example similar to what we see in the Psalms of the capacity for all ranges of emotion that you and I wrestle with as we walk in the challenges of, the li of life in this world. I've needed this in my own life, my own journey to say and believe God is able to deal with my emotions and my feelings that I don't have to sugarcoat how I'm thinking or feeling, but I can bring those things before him. See, I'm thankful for it because it shows us that distressing words don't necessarily equal an absence of faith. Notice he doesn't say he hates God. He hates life. So in some senses, there's an element of a trust in God that he can be honest with him, that God's a safe person to process his emotions with. And that's good news for us. Brothers and sisters, God holds you and me together even in our groaning, even in our wondering what he's doing. And there is much in this life to groan about. Zach Eswine, a pastor and writer, writes this. We read the news. We bury our children. Murders, thefts, bribes, fists, weapons, sex, Lies and weathered patterns are used to brutalize people. We hate that what God created good has become like a rusty nailed playground, no longer fit for kids at play and cutting the skin of those who try. We hate this 
the wise cannot pretend that all is well. This means this strong language by the preacher isn't immature. It isn't disqualifying. It's painfully honest. There's no fake it till you make it here. No, no happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. No, what we learn here is that there's an aspect that we can rightly hate. We can be righteously angry at sin and its effect and death. It's, death is normal to life, but it's not natural to life. It's not the way God intended and created for things to be. And so we experience the raw and real emotion of, of hating life, not because we don't get what we want, but because we experience the real effects of sin in our life. We experience it in our world as we look out, even as we seek to live wisely in this world. The author reflects on the inevitability of death, leads him to consider not only what's the point of wisdom, but also what's the point of work then? You see this in verses 18 through 23. Let me read the first few here. 18 through 21, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What's one of the first questions we ask someone after meeting them? What do you do? What do you do? We want to know what that person's vocation is. And when I say vocation, I mean what you do with your time during the day. You may get paid for that. You may not get paid for that. So that means it could be being a student or a stay-at-home parent with your kids working in the home or on the home or going to an office or a lab or a doctor's office or a classroom. It could be all of those things. That's your vocation, what you spend your time doing during the day. Why do we ask people that? Why is that one of the first things we ask someone when we meet them? Because at some level, we believe that our vocation is what gives us identity, what gives us purpose. It defines a bit of who we are. See, we have to understand vocation and work is not a result of sin. It's not a result of the fall. It was a part of God's good design before sin entered into the world. We saw that in our recent series in Genesis 1 through 3. But now because of sin, vocation, whatever that is, is difficult. It's filled with thorns and thistles. So the author considers wisdom and considers death, but he also considers the point of all of his work. He doesn't use the word work here, though, does he? He says toil. That has the sense of, of hard work, of labor, of difficulty, of grinding it out. He spends all this time using his gifts and abilities and strengths, his energy, his wisdom, and his knowledge to create and to build and to produce and to provide, and then he dies. What's the point? Who is he really if that's all that it is? And on top of that, he knows that he'll leave it all to somebody else. Both what he built and he acquired. And he isn't sure if that someone else will use it wisely or foolishly. If he or she will continue to cultivate it or squander it. And this is disheartening. We don't know the exact contents of a work week in his day, but most of us probably are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week for the large majority of our lives and to think that one day we'll be gone and everything we've spent all of our time doing, where's it going to go? Who's going to do anything with it? 
It leads him to despair, to declare once again the seeming futility of it all, yet another expression of the vapor that life is here today and gone tomorrow. There's a very real possibility that all he's worked for, for really won't amount to anything significant. And when you tie that back to the reality, he'll probably be forgotten when he's gone. It's kind of depressing. And so he says, verses 22 and 23, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. It was as I was thinking about those last couple of verses this week, it, it sounds to me like a cloudy day look on life in Northern Virginia, doesn't it? A lot of us work and work and work. We toil and we struggle. And we find ourselves vexed. I like that word. It means aggravated, irritable, restless. Like a song on repeat, we keep thinking about what we didn't get done and still have to get done as we go to bed and as we rise. And even if it's not front and center, it's often playing like background music in our minds. This sobering assessment of work in these verses shows up in a common experience of people that are often grouped in a category of their late 30s to their late 40s called the midlife crisis. And we poke fun of this in culture, but it's a real thing. People work for years and years, grinding it out, trying to be successful, and then one day look around and think, is this really it? Is this my life? It happens in all vocations, even in ministry. It can feel like a crisis or at least a disorienting time because, again, we tend to tie much of our identity, much of our value to what we do. Now, maybe you're new to work just graduating from high school or college, and you don't feel this way right now, you have aims and goals and dreams, and that's okay. But if that's you, I want you to see from the experience of this author that even if you meet all of those goals and all of those dreams and achieve everything that you wanted, they won't ultimately satisfy you because they were never meant to. In some ways, it seems like what's happening with this author is he's kind of having a midlife crisis. He's looking around wondering, is this all there is? If so, then what's the point? So our relationship with our work is a struggle for all people all over the place in varying degrees, but it seems acute here in this area. Career and vocation are at the forefront of our culture. We orient so much of our life around it. Why? For the same reason the author is on this journey in this book. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for value. We're looking for purpose, and we're trying to find it in what we do. What that means is that for a lot of people, work and vocation can become an idol where we give our worship to it and we give our allegiance to it. And because it's an idol, it can also be a source of pride or despair. See, the problem is either way, it will always come up short. It will always not satisfy. There's always more to do. There's, no matter how hard you work, or how much you accomplish, there's always more to do, and one day you'll be gone, and it'll get passed on to someone else. See, the sobering reality is when personal success and personal significance are your chief aim, the pursuit of that will crush you. It will crush you. It can all feel so futile. So what are we to do with all this? 
I mean, where is hope for the author? Where is hope for this original audience? Where is there hope for us in all this? What are we to do with this? If death is coming for us all, if we're all going to be forgotten, then what's the point of wisdom? What's the point of working hard? Well, nothing if you only have self in view. Nothing if you only have this life in view. It is full of sorrow and vexation and unrest. It is indeed a vapor. And the reality is, you really aren't that big of a deal. But the good news is, this life isn't all that there is. As we'll see in our text next week, God has put eternity in our hearts. And listen to me, your value is not found in what you do. See, purpose and meaning aren't found under the sun, but in the one who made the sun. It's only when we take into view God that life under the sun, including wisdom and including work, can be reframed and reshaped and redeemed, which maybe surprisingly is exactly where the author goes. Look at verses 24 and 25, a place that he starts to give us some hope. He says, in conclusion of all of this, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is the first positive note in this book. So, so what is the exact author exactly saying here? Well, I think the key phrase here is apart from him. Apart from him. When you and I view life and live life with self at the center and without God in view, it can lead to despair, to disenchantment. But the author, in his pursuit of significance, in his pursuit of meaning, is confronted with a comforting reality. Yes, death is coming for us all. Yes, there is a vaporous nature to life, but we serve an eternal God. We serve a resurrecting God. We serve a redeeming God who is above all and over all, the one who sent his son to save us from our sin and from our self-focus. A God who gives us the simple things of food and drink and work to be enjoyed. See, in these couple of verses, the author is offering us a perspective correction, a call to reorient what you do with your life and the lens in which you look at it, you view it. See, so often we make our life about ourselves. We make work about ourselves instead of seeking to make life about God and his glory. But he is the one who, the author says, verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. The one who pleases God is the one who has God in view. The one who recognizes that God is king and not self, that this is God's world, not ours. The one who's seeking to walk in God's good ways in all of life, including work. To that person, God gives wisdom and knowledge. To that person, he gives joy in the midst of this life, even in its difficulties. I think we often grow discontent or grumble when we forget God. And this can happen when we take good things and make them into ultimate things. But the author is helping us to put God back at the center, recognizing that God is the giver of all good things. First Timothy chapter four, verses four through five say, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, having God in view, nothing, including your work, what you do with your day, for it is made holy 
by the word of God and by prayer. Everything. That's why the author can say what he says in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is not fatalism. It's freedom. It's freedom. Because when God is in view, we're able to recognize there's more to life than the here and now. And when that happens, we can actually enjoy life in the here and now. But perhaps some of us have become too consumed by our work, wrapping our identity so much within that. Perhaps some of us are working too much and too hard. We're the compulsive worker, overloading our days with toil and nights with worry. And in that, we've missed the simple joys that God gives. Maybe some of us are in a job that we don't particularly like right now. Maybe some of us are not in the job that we would hope to be in or where we thought we'd be at this point in our life. And so we struggle along the way. If you find yourself struggling with joy in this life, maybe it's an indicator that we've started to make that time and what we do with our day an ultimate thing in our life instead of God being the ultimate thing person, object of our affections. The author is helping us reframe all of this to see those things not as ultimate things, but as God-given things. And I think what he's doing here is he's breaking down what sometimes is called the sacred secular divide. This idea that things like eating and drinking and going to work are non-spiritual things. And spiritual stuff is what I do when I open up my Bible or I share the gospel with somebody or I pray or I gather with the church. But that other stuff I do Monday through Friday, that's that's just secular kind of stuff, non-spiritual things. But in reality, what he's helping us see is that all of life is sacred. All of life is holy. And we can see that when we see God as a sovereign king over it all. He is present with you in all of it. Author A.W. Tozer said this, it is not what a man or woman does that determines whether his or her work is sacred or secular. It's why he or she does it. The motive is everything. The motive is everything. It doesn't matter what you spend your day doing if you have God in view. You can Make that a holy moment as you seek to honor and glorify him. It's why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, including your work, do all to the glory of God. So what's the point if we're all going to die one day? It's to glorify God. It's to glorify him by enjoying him now and forever in all that we do, no matter what it is that we do. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. God has established the time and place in which you live. You live where you live. You work where you work because God is sovereign and providential over the entirety of your life. And he's giving you life in the midst of that. And when you see that and you see him in that, you can experience joy. If you don't, the author says, then we're like the sinner who gathers and collects only to lose it all in the end. When God is not in view, everything does seem like vanity and striving after wind. Listen, your work and what you produce and what you receive from it is good, but it's not ultimate. It's good, so it can be enjoyed. So hear me, some of you need to hear this. Take your vacation time. It'll be okay. Don't work 24-7. Put your phone away and enjoy your family or your friends or a good meal or time out or sitting on your front porch or taking a walk in God's creation. Work hard, 
but rest hard too. Because you know God is in control and you are not. Now with all that in mind, it leads to one last thing I want to I press in on. And that's the reality that I think we could have that in view, but still wrestle with this desire to be significant. To be meaningful in some way. A longing to make a difference and be remembered. We can despair over death and being forgotten. But that too can change to joy when we have the right perspective. See, the author's trying to give hope here to this original audience to have God in view, but they didn't have the opportunity at that point in time to have Christ also in view. But we do. And that gives us additional hope in this life. See, God gave wisdom and work as a part of his good creation, but we know that sin has messed all of that up. But Jesus has come. And Jesus redeems those both, both of those things. Jesus is our wisdom. We can have the mind of Christ. We can follow him in all things. And Jesus is the means and model for us in this life to live in the way that God calls us to. Jesus showed us what it looks like to live with God in view. He showed us what it looks like to live out verse 24. See, Jesus didn't bypass life. He didn't get on the express train and bypass the difficulties. He didn't just show up at the end. No, Jesus came and lived in this world and in this life. He redeems that and shows us what wisdom and works looks like. He didn't just kind of show up at the end and, and finish the work at the cross. No, he was a blue-collar worker as a carpenter, serving his community, providing for himself. But he also was always about the work that the Father gave him to do. Always about honoring the Father. Jesus exemplified a right perspective for us. He even knew that death was coming even for him, but he didn't despair. He walked toward it with joy because he knew it wasn't all there is. He knew it wasn't the end. He would go to that cross bearing the weight of all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our living for self for you and for I, and he would die and take on the wrath of God, but three days later he would rise again. And so Philippians 2 tells us he humbled himself knowing that was the goal, knowing that was the purpose by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Listen, he worked for our salvation. He worked for the atonement of our sins so that we didn't have to because we were incapable of fixing our greatest problem. We are the recipients of Jesus's labor and toil and struggle and work. So if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you haven't turned away from finding your identity in what you do, then turn to him. Find hope and faith and forgiveness in him. And if you have placed your faith in him, then I want you to recognize and remember that that has fundamentally changed your identity and your purpose in this world. You are now in Christ and our risen king, in through him, gives resurrection to your life now and forever. Gives redemption to your life now and forever. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is what he says, and the life I now live in the flesh, in the here and now, under the sun. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me which means that your significance isn't found in what you do, but who you now are. God sees you and he calls you his own. And I hope that you can see that and experience that as freeing, no matter what you spend your time and your day doing. Now, instead of looking for the things of this world to give you significance, instead of longing for legacy, 
to be revered and remembered. You can focus on living your life with God in view for him, for his glory, and enjoy all that he gives you along the way. That's how Paul can say in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. From, from God you'll receive this inheritance, this reward, not what's in your retirement account, not in the severance package you'll get or retirement package you'll get. You are serving the Lord Christ. He is the object and the goal of your work and what you spend your time doing. And this has been really helpful for me over the last few weeks. It's a reality that I need to keep praying through and keep pressing into my own heart. Because I wrestle with this too. I've wrestled with a lack of joy, wrestled with calling, asking myself, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Is, even this, is this even what I'm supposed to be doing with my time and with my life? And this text in the gospel of grace has been good for me to meditate on also. It's helped me to remember and recognize that the goal for my life is not my own personal significance, it's faithfulness. It's being faithful to what God's asked of me. So I'm striving, asking myself, am I striving to be faithful to God with what he's given me, both in wisdom and in work, regardless if I'll be remembered or praised or pass it all on to someone else? Am I living and working for his glory or my own? There's a quote that it, I've always loved that's helped me to keep the right perspective. It's from Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He said this very simply, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. This is not a morbid view of life. It's a view that has life and eternity, self and God in the right places. I'm not here to make much of me. I'm here to make much of Jesus. Who cares if anyone remembers my name or yours? Listen, the reality is you don't know that you'll make a lasting, significant impact. But that doesn't have to lead to despair or apathy when God is in view. It doesn't matter if anyone knows your name or remember what you've done. God knows you and he'll never leave you or forsake you. So now, humbly work unto the Lord for his glory, for the fame of him who provides wisdom and knowledge and through that joy in all that you do because you know that as hard as life is, it is in all that there is. May we be faithful then until he comes again or calls us home. Amen.